Now, there's some definitions he gives to faith, but faith itself has applications that can be made just like applications of how we speak, how we think, how we behave, how do we do our work, how diligently do, do we do our work, how do we interact with one another, how do we interact with the lost, how do we strive to grow in the craft of evangelism. All of these things have very important applications, but faith itself can be a little more difficult to understand, like how do I make an application that's exclusively something of faith, detached from other things. And I think Hebrews 11 and 12 are really centered on making applications that are exclusively based in broadening, deepening, and growing our faith. That ultimately was the problem, that the Hebrew writer is um, uh, making the point that the audience was struggling with, that ultimately it's a problem of faith. Uh, If you remember, we've talked before about how at the end of the letter, he asked them to bear with the word of exhortation or encouragement and how that literally means to bring alongside. That the goal of the author is, is not to so much bring uh, Jesus to the side of the right or Jesus to the side of the reader, but bringing the reader to Jesus' side, um, which is the theme verse of the letter that we'll see in this chapter. And the chapter was divided really 1 through 10, uh, specifically chapter 10, verse 18, The writer is really trying to paint a very vivid picture of where Jesus is, how Jesus sympathizes because of who he is, how Jesus can be approached because of who he is and what he endured in his ministry, the glory of where he is, the glory of where we are because of that. And then in chapter 10, verse 19, he begins making applications that are an extension of seeing Jesus in these ways. So in chapter 11, we looked at all of these different examples of faith that the beginning of chapter 12 calls, is called a cloud of witnesses. I'm going to read chapter 12, um, starting in the first 11 verses. And what we're going to see is how those cloud of witnesses, we're not to fixate our eyes on them, but it's that they, as an encouragement to us, help us to look forward and center our perspective on Jesus. So I've titled the chapter, The Discipline of Faith. Because in focusing our eyes on Jesus and in being urged to set our focus on him as our goal, there's a discipline to how we do that that we're going to see focused on throughout this chapter. So verses 1 through 11, we're going to first see how the writer encourages us to see that God is disciplining us as sons. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, 
and we respected them, shall we not much, so shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I think one of the overall principles to gain from these first 11 verses, the Hebrew Christians here that were being written to, it's been pointed out that it seems like they were withdrawing for quite some time from their faith and from one another. And the reason they were withdrawing was the suffering that they were going through or the conflict they were enduring. And he mentions that kind of in verse 4, when he mentions that they're resisting, but it's really not to the point of shedding blood. One of the overall principles of these first 11 verses, the problem is not that things are too hard. Like the reason they're withdrawing is not because the circumstance demands that they do that. Like they don't need to be as discouraged as they are. They don't need to be withdrawing from one another as they are. And so the problem isn't that things are too hard. The problem is their own lack of focus and their perspective. And the problem is they're not releasing or seeking release from the things that are weighing them down. So the first illustration he gives is the illustration of running a race. At the end of chapter 11, I made the point that it could almost be visualized as a race where there was a baton being passed from runner to runner. And that the baton being the, the faith that's being handed down from generation to generation, you know, when we are given the baton, you just imagine it being soaked and dripping the blood of those who have come before, who had handed it off before. So you imagine this race that we're being encouraged to run, being a race that those who've come before us have endured. Ultimately, in verse, in verse 1, a race is more difficult to endure when you don't have a clear sense of your goal. Uh, when I was a little bit younger, um, shortly after I repented when I was uh, 20 of living in sin, um, I had a very misguided idea that what would help me like, continue to repent and grow in my faith would be to join the Navy SEALs. So I was very focused on getting in really good shape so that I could skip like, doing a full term in the Navy and basically qualify very quickly to get into the Navy SEALs. So I was doing a lot of running. And I, when I would run, I would specifically set goals for myself. So I would set a goal, you know, I'm going to run six miles and I'm not going to walk. Even if I've got to run very slowly, I'm not going to walk. And the reason why I was so motivated to do that at that time was because I was looking forward to the endurance I would need to have later because I wanted to be involved in something that I saw as great. I wanted to be able to be entrusted with what I perceived was going to be difficult work eventually or difficult situations. And I wanted to be able to have the endurance where I could participate in that, right? And so the exhortation of the Hebrew Christians is if we're focused on Jesus, we'll understand that ahead of us, God is trying to help us to share in his holiness God has an ambition with our salvation and our suffering and the endurance of our suffering equips us to be more fully charactered in a way where we can have endurance to, um, to work and serve and uh, do God's will in the future. A runner also doesn't um, needlessly encumber themselves for a race. 
So especially with marathons, people tend to do a lot of training leading up to a marathon, and they tend to do a lot of things to reduce their weight. Um, I know Buddy has run a couple of marathons, and so he's mentioned to me a couple of like dieting tricks or food tricks where not only before running the marathon can you make sure you're losing enough weight and you're in good enough shape, but even while running you can make sure your body's getting what it needs to continue to have endurance. So to be serious about running a distance or having a goal, you're also not encumbering yourself in unnecessary ways. And in fact, if you understand what you're participating in, you're doing everything you can to actually eliminate any possible encumbrance that makes it harder than it needs to be. So in verse 1, he mentions two things that encumber us if we recognize what we're participating in and what we're doing. Sins and weights. So if we're going to run the race and have endurance, the problem is not that things are too hard when we suffer. The problem is we're confronted with a choice when we suffer. Are we going to recognize ways in which we can liberate encumbrances when we suffer, or are we going to just continue to be encumbered by things that are hindering us? Think When you think about a sin, um, it's more things that uh, we choose to do that separate us from God. Things like lying or stealing, um, profane language, uh, things that are distinctly against God's will, but encumbrances or weights, as your translation might say it, would be more things that just weigh down your capacity to focus on the Lord. Maybe make it more difficult to have as much joy in the Lord or make it more difficult to have time devoted to prayer. I think one of the conclusions that you see in Scripture with Hebrews and with books like the Psalms, that one of the ambitions of serving God and meditating on his glory and understanding his work by faith is not just seeing God more clearly, but being able to look into our heart more clearly so that we can be internally liberated to put more emphasis in our lives on God's nature and our service to God. So in verse 2, all of this is about focusing our mind and our, our vision more on Jesus, who is our ambition. So Jesus in verse 2. Earlier in Hebrews, especially in chapter 2, there is an emphasis on how Jesus came and shared our nature. And so Jesus, if, if anything, had less advantage while he was living in the flesh because there was a greater sense of discipline he needed to have to not give in to temptation and use the power and the rights that he had as the Son of God to liberate himself from his suffering. And yet Jesus, in verse 2, being like us, was able to endure the cross. And he was able to endure the cross and even despise the shame, counting it as nothing, because of the surpassing value of the joy that was set ahead of him. So in verse 3, the more we consider the, uh, the mind of Jesus and how he endured, the more we will then be able to also endure without growing weary and losing heart. Um, verses 4, 5, and 6. Just a, a quick side note. This is a quotation from Proverbs and Job. And I think it's interesting when you read Proverbs, it's easy to kind of look at Proverbs as David talking to his son Solomon. So Solomon is the writer of Proverbs who uh, quotes David saying, my son, do this, my son, do that. And you can easily minimize the context of just thinking that these were things for Solomon to learn from David that were supposed to guide him in godliness in his time. But notice in verse 5, who ultimately was God speaking to by Solomon's hand? 
He says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. As much as Solomon is reflecting on wisdom he had received, even more than that, we're to reflect on the wisdom we are meant to receive from God as our father. So God's discipline and the circumstances that make us suffer or press our endurance have purpose. We've talked in the past in our series on Hebrews that one of the ambitions is not to disassociate ourselves from Jesus by our suffering, but instead to associate our suffering to Jesus. And what, I'm, what I've meant by that in the past is how easy it can be where if I'm not being directly persecuted for my faith, um, for teaching the truth or saying something that's doctrinally related in scripture that someone disagrees with, it can be easy to think that my suffering then does not have value related to my faith. And a Hebrew writer, I think, is helping us to understand that God is so intimately invested in our lives, there is no such thing as our lives having any difficulty or suffering that is disconnected from our relationship with God. Think about your children. We have a lot of families here who have small children. How closely do you watch your kids, especially when they're like directly in your presence? And when they're hurt, when they cry, how close do you get with them when they're obviously needing your help? And in the same way, the exhortation is that God is looking at us and disciplining us and raising us as his own children. So the idea isn't that God is distant and disconnected from us, but that God is intimately involved and associated with our lives in ways that are very difficult to appreciate except by faith. Um, So in verse 11, God's goal of faith and discipline is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Getting to that peaceable fruit of righteousness requires discipline that in the moment does not seem joyful. And again, with the young families we have in the group, the illustration should be really easy to understand. When you discipline your kids, oftentimes I imagine they have no idea why you're disciplining them. I imagine they may think you're being very cruel for disciplining them, I imagine that you're disciplining them with the intention of knowing that this is something that's more like a long-term action, that you're hoping that after time passes with consistency, your child will be trained to recognize why they're being disciplined. And your discipline isn't pointless. The reason why you discipline your child is to protect them. It's because your ambition is to raise an adult and not just a child, that you want them to be able to function with discipline in their life so that they can be kind self-controlled, patient, so that they can endure suffering even without throwing a temper tantrum, so that they can learn to say no to temporary pleasure in view of greater things that come from patience. And so discipline isn't pointless. There's a reason why discipline exists in a child's life that isn't, isn't oftentimes within their capacity to understand. And so the Hebrew writer isn't calling us to understand the exact reason for everything that we suffer, but more to understand the principle that when we do suffer, that there is purpose that God can bring into our suffering that leads us into God's nature and into peace. So we have to learn to recognize that God is treating us as his children in the same way that we discipline children for their own good. We also can't want um, to be sons of God and daughters of God, children of God, and want all the blessings that are involved without the discipline involved. We have to recognize that as being born again when we're baptized, that we're beginning a process of becoming completely new. 
that there are qualities and there are characteristics, there's mentalities, there's behaviors that are not just going to naturally come into our lives, that we need God's help to learn how to apply his will and how to endure in his will as well and trust him to raise us and lead us by his providence. So leading into the next um, part of uh, the text, starting in verse 12, God disciplines us for the purpose of holiness. And that's at the end of verse 10. And God is oftentimes described as holy. Um, John, uh, about a month ago, did a Wednesday night exhortation on Isaiah chapter 6, where seraphim surrounding God describe him as being holy, holy, holy. That God is perfectly holy. And so for God to be disciplining us for the purpose of holiness, God is disciplining us so that we can share and partake in his nature. So verse 12 through 17, we'll be looking at the discipline of holiness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight the paths of your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Um, So verse 12 and 13, suffering can discourage. And I think what's being described here is a very discouraged condition. And it's interesting how visibly this condition is being described. Hands that are weak, knees that are feeble, uh, ways that have been made crooked, and limbs that are lame that are about to be put out of joint. When I read this, I think about somebody that Jesus would have needed to have miraculously healed. Like, you don't imagine somebody in this kind of condition being in any kind of condition to participate in a race. So something has to change in order to get back into the condition where the race can be run. Um, In verse 12 and 13, I think understanding how much needs to happen to get back into a position of participation helps to emphasize the urgency of repentance and the need for repentance Um, on part of the reader as well. I think it gets back to chapter 5 and chapter uh, 10 where the writer gives some of the stronger exhortations. When we realize the danger that we put ourselves in when we withdraw from God, it helps to deepen the conviction that motivates taking action to make change. So verse 14. There are two things where if we're going to be holy, if we want the hope of seeing the Lord, Verse 14 gives two things that we need to be pursuing or we will not see the Lord. The first is pursuing peace with all men. And the second is sanctification. Uh, Your translation may just say holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These are two things that we have to get figured out. If we want to see God, if we want the hope of heaven, all the blessings of those promises, these are the two things that we need to pursue. We talked this morning about how as a local church there's ways that we can be pursuing peace with humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance. But think about this also with people at work, people at school, that you're pursuing peace with everyone, not just your brethren. And I think with all men means without exception. 
Think about how easy it is to be aware of grudges or bitterness or just broken relationships and just with everything else going on to not want to make any effort to make a change. And so this, I think, is meant to motivate us that those things that can be so easily minimized, God is trying to bring back into the surface as that those may be the very things that are these sins and weights that are so easily entangling us and hindering our ability to have endurance. And holiness and sanctification. Sanctification, I think, is an interesting concept in the way it's described here. There are often times in the Old Testament where things get sanctified. Things are made holy. So like priests, for instance, they went through a process where they were made holy. Objects for service were sanctified. The temple, the tabernacle, they were sanctified. So there's a way in which we are sanctified as an event, but then there's the process of being made more holy, which is a daily process of refinement into God's nature. Sanctification would involve, I think, the principles back in verse 1. That if there are sexual sins, if I'm involved in pornography or lust in my heart, that I'm working to strive to root that out of my heart and get rid of that sin so that I can live a holy life. If I have a problem with anger or resentment, that I'm, I'm striving to be more aware of that sin so that I can uproot it and be more holy to God. If there are other sins in my life, if I have a problem with telling the truth, if it's dishonesty, then I'm trying to be motivated to uproot that sin out of my life so that I can be holy and useful to God for his service and set apart for his service. So we need to be pursuing peace and sanctification or we will not see the Lord. And then in verse 15 through 17, I think there's a a warning here about um, the temptation to overlook these things and again to minimize things that are hindering our holiness and our pursuit of peace with all men. Esau, for one morsel of food, ended up selling his birthright uh, completely to his brother Jacob. Notice in verse 16, was Esau's decision an innocent decision? I think it can be easy to read about what happened with Esau and Jacob and think that Esau was just kind of making an easy oversight in the moment. You know, he was really hungry and Jacob asked for his birthright and You know, I mean, he said he was like starving to death. So, you know, why not? You know, give him the birthright, get the meal. But I think the point, Esau's distress and the weariness uh, that he was in, what that drew out is a greater devalue or rather it drew out more so how he devalued his inheritance and really Um, did not value all of the things that were involved with these promises that were clearly connected with Abraham, with Isaac, and then later, as Jacob would inherit it, who became Israel, the nation that God would uh, closely redeem and bless and be with. And so it's not just that Esau made an innocent decision, it's that his suffering drew out that he really did not value what he had. Imagine for a moment, those of you who have houses, that somebody wants to buy your house and you're hungry one day and they come up to you wanting to make you an offer and again, you're, you're famished. You, know, you could even say that you're starving and they offer you a Twix bar for your house 
And can you imagine how silly it would be to actually say, that's a fair deal, I'll take it. You sign the paperwork, you get the Twix bar, and you eat it, and it's really not even that satisfying for even how hungry you were. And I think that's the point in verse 16 is he sold his birthright. Everything involved in all the promises that were being built up through Abraham and his father Isaac, and he just let it all go for one meal. And it showed he did not value what he had. So go to Jacob then. Let it be given. And verse 17, even though he wanted to get it back afterwards, he couldn't get it back. And it's not the point that I think we can't receive forgiveness for sins when we've sinned against God. In chapter 40 mentioned, we can approach God's throne for grace and mercy. But we have to understand we don't have a right to repentance. That when Esau sold his birthright, that was it. And that was right. That Esau was not obligated to receive it back again. Once he sold it and made that decision, there wasn't any obligation that Jacob had to give it back. And just in the same way, when we sin against God, as Hebrews 10 talks about, sinning willfully after coming to the knowledge of the truth, God is not obligated to forgive us at that point. God's not obligated to fulfill his promises anymore. God can choose to by his grace and by his mercy, but that's exactly what it is. It's grace and mercy. Go back to Acts chapter 7. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8. There's an example of this attitude um, that I think is very helpful and very encouraging when seen in its proper context. So Acts chapter 8, when Simon the sorcerer was converted, he was somebody who practiced magic beforehand and amazed everybody by his magical arts. Verse 11 of Acts 8, they were giving him attention because he had astonished them with his magic arts. So when verse 13, Simon ended up being baptized, in verse 14, uh, verse 14 through uh, 18, Simon saw that uh, the apostles could lay their hands on people and give them the ability to perform miracles. So in verse 19, Simon said, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So regressing back into an old way of thinking, wanting to impress people and receive attention for performing magical things as he saw it. In verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, and notice this, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So Peter doesn't say, well, that's it. You sinned and that's all that you had. So it's hopeless now. He tells them to repent and to seek God's forgiveness, but the wording is very deliberate. If perhaps, or if possible, God may choose to forgive you. And I think that puts into Simon's mind that, yes, God is willing, but you don't get to assume that God's obligated to you to forgive you for doing this. You have to recognize the seriousness of what you've done, and you need to let that humble you. That's the attitude that leads us to have no tolerance for sin in our life. Not as the Pharisees, but in a humble way where we recognize what sin does against God, what sin does against our hope, 
what sin does to hurt God, what sin does to hurt us. And when we recognize how unworthy we are in view of his grace, it only leads us to value the glory of the grace that he's continuing to extend even more. And so the Hebrew readers, in the same way, were being urged not to take for granted the opportunity that the writer was urging them to see that God was willing to receive them, but not by merit and not because God was obligated to them. So verse 18, the discipline of reverence through uh, verse 29. I'm going to start by reading verse 18 through 24. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound with such that those who had heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Think... An initial thing to consider as we think about what we've received. You know, he says that the mountain that Moses came to, there was the blast of the trumpet and the blazing fire, and people couldn't even get close to the mountain. But in verse 22, what has God given us? I think the idea is how much is that really worth? That God, when he appeared on Mount Sinai, that was terrifying. And like God even said, don't let anyone come near here. And when Moses said, he's, he's like, I'm, I don't even want to go near there. This is terrifying, the sight. And for God to humble himself and to invite us to come right on into the city, that we are enrolled in heaven. We're a part of this general assembly along with angels, myriads of angels. We're there with God, the judge of all, with Jesus, the mediator of this new covenant, what kind of value should we assign to that kind of inheritance? And so as Jacob, or as rather Esau, gave up his inheritance for nothing because he didn't recognize the value of what he had, the exhortation is for us, in contrast, to recognize the value of what we have. That we're not just serving God under the obligation of commandments. We have received entrance into the city of Zion. We are a part of the community of those who have come before us and have lived by faith and were found perfect before God. Verse 25, See to it that you do not receive him or refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape uh, who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. When we suffer the most automatic response is to seek refuge in whatever, whatever gives us a feeling of safety and security. Where is the place of security in this text? 
Notice he says, everything except Zion, all of these created things, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And all of that is going to vanish. But there's one thing that will remain, and that's verse 28. The kingdom we've received that cannot be shaken. If we understand what we've received, that becomes our place of safety. When we suffer, oftentimes for me, the temptation is, I want to withdraw to something in the world that has given me a sense of familiar comfort in the world. Something that appeals to me and makes sense to me. But a part of the discipline of faith is having the reverence to recognize the world is not my safety. And that by faith I recognize that although I may suffer in the world, my refuge from the world is God's eternal kingdom. And so how do we learn to value that safety with more discipline and reverence? And that's verse 28. Reverence and awe. I want to go back to a psalm that we looked at this morning, Psalm 113. Uh, Psalm 113. And I want to look at the first three verses uh, that we didn't read um, in the lesson this morning. So this part of the Psalms is the fifth book of the Psalms. And the fifth book starts in Psalm uh, 107. Oh, I'm sorry. Not... uh, not 107. Let me let me go back. I am drawing an unfortunate blank, uh, not remembering when the there it is. Book five starts in Psalm 107. Sorry about that blank. Uh, but Psalm 107 through 150. Um, is a book that's threaded with more praise than any other section of the Psalms. And in Psalm 113, verses 1 through 3, I want to look at the reverence and awe that you see in the author's prayer. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And as he goes on to describe what God has done in raising up the poor from the dust despite the high position he's in, look at how it ends in the last phrase at the end of verse 9. He says, praise the Lord. How we grow in reverence and awe, I think simply an application is prayer. There's a difference between prayers of thankfulness and prayers of praise. There's prayers of thankfulness where I'm thanking God for what I've received or things he's done, but there's these prayers of praise that are more just being in awe of who God is. It's recognizing the glory of what makes God holy and distinct and unique. It's praising God for seeing the things that he does even outside of myself. It's praising God in a way where you are seeking for God to receive as much praise as can possibly be given. I think it's interesting in verse 1. It's not just that the author himself is giving praise. He is calling on others to participate in that praise. Not only does he want all servants of the Lord to praise the Lord, he wants in verse 2 that praise to become never-ending. And in verse 3, he even wants in the sphere of the present life, from the rising of the sun to its setting, so long as there is light, the author wants God to be receiving praise. So an application is prayers of praise. 
But I think a part of this as well, um, an application in prayer. If, again, um, you're like me, oftentimes your prayers of thankfulness are oftentimes thankfulness for physical things. And it's important to praise God and thank God for the physical things we have. But I think the Hebrew writer in those final exhortations, speaking of Zion and the city and who's in that city and, and how we've received this kingdom, our prayers of thankfulness need to include thanks for the things that are not tangibly received. And so we haven't received in a physical way this kingdom in a way we can touch or taste, but we still have received it. And so I think striving to praise and thank God for blessings that we can't see and have not yet fully received leads us to have this sense of reverence and awe that increases the heart's value of the inheritance that we have. And that draws us closer to God. It draws us to serve him with a greater perspective. It draws us to have a greater joy in the things that are not um, based in circumstance but outside of circumstance. And in chapter 13, it'll draw us to seek to continue to apply God's word even when those applications require willingly putting ourselves in a position of discomfort or loss or suffering as a result. So we'll stop there um, in the study of Hebrews and begin going through some of those applications a little more uh, slowly to try to really understand what we're being instructed to do with this letter um, the next time we look at Hebrews. Um, If you're here this afternoon and you're desiring the prayers of the saints for any reason, whether it be wanting to confess sin, seek encouragement, or just to make some need known, uh, now is an appropriate time while we stand and sing the invitation song.